He rose. So he is risen. That's an ancient greeting that the Christians used to have when they would say, He is risen. And you would, they would respond with this reminder that He is risen indeed. And uh, so this morning, we're grateful to have you here with us to celebrate what we believe is the most earth-shattering, life-changing event in all of human history. It changed the course of history, and so today we celebrate that. And if you are here today and you that is something you believe, you grasp onto, you say, I'm all in, you're welcome. And you might be here today and you might be a skeptic, and you might say, I don't know if I really believe that. Uh, maybe someone made you come here, maybe you came by your own choice, but you're exploring, you're not sure. You also are welcome. We are glad to have you, no matter where you're at in your faith journey this morning, uh, to, to learn and to celebrate with us. We are glad that you are here. One of the things that uh, I just want to challenge you with is this morning, would you consider at least, no matter where you're at in that journey, what it means if Jesus rose from the dead? Because today we want to make sense of the story. I, I, I thought about this morning and I could have taken the time to go through some of the evidence that we believe there is and the logical reasoning for the resurrection and why we believe it was true and it happened. But I decided not to take that approach. We'll, we'll throw out a few ideas, but really what I wanted to do today instead of answering, did it happen, is to answer, why did it happen? Because often the question comes up is, doesn't it seem a little barbaric that God is into, is, is he into human sacrifice, or is it just superstition to believe that someone could rise from the dead? So this morning what I want to do is address why is the death and crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus in the story in the first place? Why does it logic, where does it logically fit? And I believe when we look at that, we can make sense of this story. Now, I want to give you a little illustration that I want to challenge you all with here today, though, as we look at it. In, in this bag here, I have something that's very culturally relevant and something that here in Encinitas, uh, a lot of you probably, it's, it's one of the most popular items in our health, in our diets. Um, some would call this the nectar of the gods, but... Uh, but here is, is, is a bottle of, of Mountain Dew. And I remember when I was a little kid and, and uh, I got to go to my, when I'd go to my uncle's house, my brother and I would go there and my other cousin would go there and, and my, my uncle always had Mountain Dew. And it was cool because he would, he would drink Mountain Dew and then we got to drink it. And it became like, that's pretty fun. Every time we get to hang out, we got Mountain Dew. And it became just a part of something that I, of my life and, and my uncle tragically lost his life when I was in junior high. And, but it is still something that his, his legacy lives on with me. In fact, I saw one of my cousins uh, two weeks ago, and he was drinking Mountain Dew. And I said, oh, you too? We're still... So for me, on Friday nights, uh, we have pizza night in my house. And I think there's nothing better than pizza and Mountain Dew. And I know some of you are like, what are you, a junior hire? And I think, like, my wife would say yes. A lot of times he is. So... But so I still like this. Now, I know what some of you will say, because we live in Encinitas, California in 2018. My kids at their schools cannot get one of these out of the vending machine, as, as many of us could when we were growing up. In fact, I was surprised when we moved to Encinitas, they said, in your elementary school, the kids grow food in the garden, and we actually use that food and sell it at lunchtime in the salad bar. My first thought was, why would you waste all those vegetables? Nobody's going to buy a salad bar in elementary school. And they said, no, it sells out every day. And I thought, what is wrong with Antonitas? I mean, seriously. <laughs> so I know what some of you are thinking when I'm holding this. What you're thinking is, Ryan, do you know what you're doing to your body when you drink that? Do you know what's in this? 
And the answer is no, and I don't care. Um, I have looked at a couple of ingredients, and, I, and I'll share a couple with you. The first one in here, the number one ingredient, which means it's mostly that's all it really is, is the first one is water. So, this, so the first ingredient is water, and we all know we need water. Water is good for you. So that's, we're good. We're good to go. The second ingredient um, ruins my illustration. So the third ingredient... The third ingredient in, in Mountain Dew, and if you know this, I, I guarantee you, you will win some bets and trivia, is it's the flavor of Mountain Dew, and it's actually orange juice. I've won many bets with people, and I said, Mountain Dew is actually just carbonated orange juice. Seriously. So the third ingredient is orange juice. So it's high in vitamin C and water. So this is, this here is a, it's good. There's nothing wrong with it when I think of it that way. But I, I understand that it gets to some other ingredients I can't pronounce and stuff like that later. And maybe some things aren't great for me. But here's the thing. I don't really want to know all that because if I know it, it might change something about, and I don't want to change my Mountain Dew habit. I like it. And I don't want to change it. So I don't care what else is in it. Some of us approach God and we approach the resurrection a very similar way. We say, I only want to know this much about the story of God because if I know too much then it might actually start to affect my life. It might actually start to transform me from within. And I kind of like my life right now. And so my challenge for you this morning is let's not treat the story of Jesus like I treat Mountain Dew. And just hear only what you want to hear. But let's be open to say what is actually the truth. And will that truth transform and change your life? I think our kids ministry is giving out Mountain Dew today, by the way. So, um... Just kidding. As some parents get up and go get their kids out. <laughs> they're not giving them Mountain Dew. They're giving them peeps. Come on. All right. <laughs> Why are, I, I don't like eat marshmallows, but what is it with peeps? They're so, something about them. They're so cute. They're just delicious. All right, so. <laughs> we better start. Okay, so we're going to turn to the book of Luke chapter 24. I want to invite you to turn there, and as we go there, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this morning. I thank you uh, for the story of the resurrection, and I thank you that the story doesn't end on the cross, but there's hope because of what happens on Sunday. So, Lord, would you speak to us in this place? And I pray for all of us, whether we're just seeking you out or whether we fully believe that it would be truth that changes us and transforms us. We thank you and give you this time now. In your name, amen. Luke chapter 24 says this. I'm going to read the story for you, and then we're going to try to make sense of it. Where does it fit in the story of Scripture? So Luke chapter 24 says, On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. So the first day would be a Sunday. The day before was Sabbath, and you could do no work on the Sabbath. So... It was customary, you'd prepare the body for burial, and it was not uncommon that maybe a couple days later, or the next day, you'd complete the preparation for the body, uh, and it, essentially what you're preparing it for with these aloes and lotions and spices and perfumes was so the body could decompose, that's really all the process was, and so they went to the tomb to prepare with more spices for the body. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And in the first century, in uh, Jerusalem, the tombs would have this giant stone that's cut out as like this giant uh, circle shape uh, cut out of rock, and it would be rolled in front of the tomb. To this day, in Jerusalem, there's a tomb of the uh, family of Herod, and there's that round rock that is still in front of the tomb. So you can actually see it even to this day. So they went and they saw the stone was rolled away. 
But when they entered in, they did not find the body of Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, for he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day rise again. So in the book of Matthew chapter 16, there's a story about how Jesus uh, actually predicted that this would happen. He said that I will be handed over. I will be crucified for my sins, but I will, or for the, I will be crucified for your sins, but I will rise again on the third day. So they remembered, wait, he did say this. And in verse 8, they remembered his words and they returned from the tomb and reported all of these things to the 11, uh, to the other disciples. And in verse 10, now it was, there was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and there was Mary the mother of James, and the other women were there telling them and telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up, he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now, the picture here is, in the morning, there's this group of women who who were part of the disciples, and they went to prepare the body. Now, this is just a side note, but one of the evidences for the story of of the uh, resurrection was that the first witnesses were women. Now, this is not culturally relevant to 2018, but in first century... It was considered, and we have changed a lot as a culture for the better on this issue, so please, this is first century culture, but women, in, in fact, in the Roman Empire, women's, the testimony of a woman was not allowed in court of law. They said it didn't count because they weren't to be trusted. Don't get mad at me. They were not enlightened. They did not understand. But, so if you were writing in first century, and you were writing a story, and you were trying to convince people, and you were making it up, It wasn't recording facts as you saw them, but you said, we better twist the facts to make it make a little more sense. You wouldn't use women as your first witnesses. So this is, it's a side note. It's not the only evidence. It's just one of those things that should make you say, well, if they were just not, if they're just making up the story, they would have made it up differently. So whoever wrote this, this, they believe this is how it happened. Now, what happens is, is Peter, one of the disciples, he hears it and they said, we don't get this. We're not quite making sense of this because we, we might believe in, we believe in a spiritual resurrection, but a, a physical resurrection, uh, hold on, that, that is shattering our idea of how things work. And so Peter runs to the tomb and he looks inside. And, and I actually really like in the book of John, there's a similar account, but John writes a, a little bit more detail. He has a couple extra lines. And one of them, he says, Peter first looks and he sees inside the tomb. But then he says he looked again. And he uses this Greek word called thoreto. Now, in the Greek here, the, he, he didn't use a word that just means to look at. He uses thoreto, which means to look at the facts and to come to a logical conclusion based on what he sees. That's, and, and the word actually is our root word from which we get the word theory. So when you make a theory, you look at the facts using the observations of what you know, and you try to make sense of it. And that is actually the description of what Peter did. He looked at this, these linen wrappings that were around the body of Jesus. He saw that there was no body in there anymore, and he was trying to make sense of what he could see. Now, a couple things that he was making sense of. 
See, if the body's not there, your first thought is somebody took it. Somebody stole the body in the night. So Peter might have thought, like, maybe that's what happened, so he ran and looked. But if he stole the body, the linen wrappings that were around the body of Christ wouldn't still be there. And actually, in all the accounts of the resurrection, it says that they're still wrapped up as if the body was there, but it's no longer in there. So even if they unwrapped the body, which would have been an unlikely, it wouldn't have been in the form in which it already was when it was around the body. The other thing is this. Some people might say, well, maybe Jesus was never actually dead. He was only mostly dead. And there's a big difference between being mostly dead and all the way dead. Thank you. This service got the reference to 1980s movies. All right. Thank you. The first two services are like, is there a difference between mostly dead and dead? Yeah. So if you still don't get it, it's Princess Bride. Okay. So he, if he was just mostly dead <laughs> and his body was slathered and, and filled with these oils and aloes and then spices packed in and then wrapped up. If you were mostly dead and you were put into a tomb and you woke up, would you just say like, oh, this is awkward and kind of like shimmy out of, the, out of the wrappings? Or would you think like, I need air and you'd pull it off and rip these things from you? So G- Peter was looking at it and thinking, okay, the way the wrappings are obviously there was a body there, and it's not there. So he might have believed in a, phys- or a spiritual resurrection, but now he's looking at what he's trying to make sense of. Is this a physical resurrection? Did Jesus, is he, did he really rise? And it was miraculous, obviously. He's not there. He was trying to make sense of it. So for us this morning, what I want to do is look at the whole story of Scripture using just four words. And I want to make sense of this. Because actually this, the events of the resurrection fit with the story of Scripture. They were necessary according to how God has designed things. So join with me now as we look at just the few uh, four words to help describe how does the resurrection make sense. The first word is this, creation. In the beginning, God created the world and he created in perfection. He, he made it perfect. He made it all things and there was perfect harmony between God and mankind. There was perfect harmony up between man and, and, and among mankind. There was no fractures in the relationship. There was, there was no kind of infighting or jealousy or any of the things that fracture and push us apart in our human relationships. There was perfect harmony. There also was perfect harmony with mankind and nature. So in the beginning, God created all things and he said, it is good. He created man and woman, and and the picture is that they were in paradise with God, and the Bible describes them as naked and unashamed, and man said, this is really good. And, And so they were there together, naked and unashamed. And it's a picture in Scripture that means that they were innocent. There was nothing between them that would tear them apart. So it was good. And that's how it was meant to be. There was no death, there was no pain, there was no sorrow. Things were as they were meant to be. That's the story of of creation. That's a story that the scripture tells us is how things were designed. Now the second word to understand the story is this, it's the fall. This would be what often in the Christian world we call it the fall of mankind or when sin enters in. 
You see, because when we existed, and the story goes that we existed and had everything that we needed, God provided everything we needed. And you may be familiar with the story where it says, you can eat from anything in the paradise, except for there's one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, whether that's an actual tree or symbolic of a choice that mankind had, it doesn't matter. The point is this, is the choice was, you can have everything you need, but God said, don't take from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil because you cannot bear the weight of making judgments. You cannot bear the weight. You are not all-knowing, you're not all-powerful, and you're not omnipresent. So mankind, who is not everything that God is, we can't bear the weight of judging right and wrong and good and bad because we never see the other perspective. We don't have full knowledge. Would you agree that mankind proves the fall often when we show that we are not very good judges? That we only like to see our side of the story and it's hard to see the other side. Would you agree if you turn on the news for just a moment that we suffer from seeing all perspectives? Doesn't matter which channel you choose on the right or the left, we suffer with the inability to really understand and consider all aspects. It's part of human nature. And so God said you can't bear the weight of this burden of judgment. You can't bear that weight. It wasn't that God was controlling. He was loving and merciful and said, you don't want this. And mankind made a choice. And that was, can we trust that what God said is good enough for us, is good enough, or is he holding back? Is there something better out there? Why doesn't he want us to have that? Maybe he's holding back. Maybe life would be better if we had it. So the story goes, we took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and now all of a sudden, the very first re- that was the very first sin, an act of rebellion against God, and the first response, the next thing that happened, is we were no longer naked and unashamed, we were naked and ashamed. Think of it. One moment, there was innocence, the next moment, they were ashamed of their nakedness. And again, it could be symbolic, but think of it. One moment they said, we know we have everything we need in Christ. And the next moment they're starting to think, Adam, you used to have a six pack. What's going on? You know, all of a sudden there was muffin tops and beer bellies. And and they didn't care before that because there was no judgment. But all of a sudden now there's judgment of each other. There's judgment of themselves saying, maybe I don't measure up. I'm not good enough for you. All of a sudden, there was hair growing in, you know, on their backs, and Adam was like, Eve, you should shave that, or whatever, you know, so. <laughs> they just, all of a sudden, judgment was in, and they felt shame. They felt shame. They were designed to be naked and unashamed. I remember when uh, one of my kids, I will not tell you which one, but when he was uh, about three years old, we have three boys, and I uh, came in the kitchen, and he was naked and unashamed. And my wife was cooking, and he came in, and just hanging out. And she said, hey, you should probably go get some, you know, you can't just run around naked. And he said, okay, I'll go get some socks. And just ran up. <laughs> you know, it used to be just as naked and unashamed, but now a couple of them are teenagers. It would be less funny if you guys came down like that now. The story is totally different. But, <laughs> but the idea was we were meant to be innocent, free from judgment of each other and of ourselves. But when sin enters, now we feel shame. And that's the fall. And, the, and what happened then is God in his graciousness has this conversation, and I love the conversation. He says, when he, Adam hides from God, and he says, why are you hiding from me? And Adam said, because I'm naked. And God asks the greatest question in all the scripture. He says, who told you you were naked? <laughs> I love that question. It's like, I just looked. I don't know. I just <laughs> saw. <laughs> 
But the point was, God was actually saying, what have you done? Confess. Tell me what you've done. Come clean. But he felt shame, and so they were hiding. And God, in his great mercy, they killed an animal, and they made clothes of an animal to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. And the very first sin resulted in the very first death. And because God is a God of justice, and God is a God of order, and God is a God, a a holy God, who can't stand in the presence of sin, there became a system now where sin and rebellion equaled death. Something innocent had to pay the price for sin. That's now the nature and the order of the creation. Because the first sin resulted in the first death. So now every act of rebellion against God comes at a price. And the author Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he says this, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The price of rebellion to God is now death. See, it fits in the narrative of Scripture. It makes sense. It's not just some random um, kind of ancient barbaric rite of, oh, kill an animal, but it was the order of things now. And every year, the Jewish nation had, and to this day, still have the Day of Atonement, but they no longer, most no longer do animal sacrifice, but they would sacrifice an animal every year on what's called the Day of Atonement. And it was a reminder that sin equals death. And in the most holiest forms, they would put their hand on the neck or the head of the animal while it was being killed as a a symbolic of transferring our guiltiness to the innocence of the animal. And they did this every year as a reminder that the wages of sin are death. The fall of man now has fractured this relationship and there is something that is not the way it's supposed to be anymore. Death and pain and sorrow and suffering was not God's original design. But it's a result because he's holy and good and orderly that now it's a result of our experience. So we have creation and we have fall, but the story doesn't stop there. That's the bad news. We've talked about it often here if you come around Seacoast. Now we get to the good news. The third word is this, redemption. Redemption is that price is going to be paid by something, and so God in his mercy says the only way, because he loves his creation, he loves mankind, the only way to have a full payment for our sin is that an innocent human would have to pay the price. So God enters in as a son of God. He lives a perfect life as a human. Now, because he is God, it's sufficient for all mankind, not just one. He paid, came to pay the price. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3-4, through 4, says, For what I received I passed on to you as first importance. That Christ Jesus died for our sins according to scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to scripture. So Paul's saying, this is the story from the beginning. There's a price that needs to be paid. God will come and pay the price according to scripture, but he will rise again. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. This was written hundreds of years before Jesus. It's part of the Dead Sea Scrolls collection. It says this. This is a, messian, a prophecy about the Son of God coming, the Anointed One. It said, He was pierced for our sins or our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. In other words, what we deserved, that was brought upon the Messiah, upon Jesus. And He paid the price. 
I think of it this way. The other night I had a dream. It was one of those dreams that you wake up and you think is real. And it, it was a ridiculous dream. It was, I was driving down Encinitas Boulevard, and, and you know where they have the red light uh, cameras? If you drive through it, and, and I got to it, and I saw that the light was red, and I just kept going. I couldn't stop. And the light was like flashing at me, and they were taking my picture. And I literally thought, why did I do that? I just, I'm, I'm going to get a ticket now. And that ticket is like $200, or I, f- I forget what, Britain, how much is it? Um, and, 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 no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Someone in first service, I said that. They said, no, it's 450 Oh, Okay. <laughs> So $450 when you go through that light. And, and so I had this dream that I went through, but I, and I literally woke up thinking, did I do it or not? Do I have to pay this? But think of if I went there and someone said, hey, you owe $450, but I'm going to pay for you I, because I love you so much. I'm going to pay this for you. And they pay it. That's a picture of redemption. Something that I owe, but someone else pays. That's what Christ did on our behalf. That's the idea of redemption in Scripture. The fourth word, final word, is this. It's two words, but phrase. New creation. New creation. You see, the story doesn't end with redemption. It doesn't just end with Jesus paying the price, but it ends with him paying the price and then confirming that that debt is paid by coming out of the grave and giving us hope for new life. It would be as if this, think of it in this way, instead of the $450, I had to serve a jail sentence of a month. And I went in and served a month in jail. I'm paying the price. I'm doing the time. As soon as that 30 days is up and I come out of the jail cell, that is the receipt saying that the sentence has been paid and it is done. It's taken care of. No longer do we have to do it. So when Christ came out of the grave, it was a confirmation that this price, this payment was accepted and the receipt is in your hands. You don't have to pay the price anymore. We don't have to pay for the sins that Christ already paid for, which is all of ours, past, present, and future. And it's so easy for us to want to go back and make amends for our lives. It's so easy to say, Jesus, you've done so much, so now let me earn back what you've done for me. And we try to go back. And pay the price he already paid. When he's saying you are free from that. Quit worrying about that. I have forgiven you of your sins. Just receive the gift and it is done. You no longer have to live in guilt and shame and fear. That's gone. It's over. You have a new creation. A new life available to you today. And not only your life today. But you have a new eternal life available to you. When Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death once and for all. It says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's writing, continues to write about the resurrection. He says, in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. There is a new life, and the life that's available to us is better than the one we have now. Most religions believe that the afterlife is just some sort of spiritual bliss. That all we're hoping to get to is a state where we no longer feel, we no longer experience pain, and we just kind of are in the state of nirvana and just ignore pain. That's often the picture of the afterlife. But in Christianity, it's not that at all. It is a new creation. It is a better version of what we have now. 
It is a better version of your relationship with God and with one another. It is a better, it's a resurrected body and it's a better version of what you have now. It's a version that can play basketball one day and the next morning not have to walk down the hall like this because your ankles don't work. It is a resurrected new body, a better version of this. That we have hope for life eternity and hope for life today. I want to uh, share with you a story of someone who is part of our community here at Seacoast and how she's processing and learning what it looks like to be a new creation. So we have it on the screen for you. Take a look up, uh, up the screens. Hi, my name's Nicole, and here's a little bit of my story. Growing up, some of the experiences that shaped my life was finding out I was dyslexic two weeks before I graduated high school. Never felt good enough. I wouldn't pass a test after studying for six hours. To make up for not feeling good enough, I turned to sports and looks and always trying to impress my friends. And I realized I wasn't happy. Experiencing not measuring up at school, I also felt the same at the church that I was a part of. I never felt like I measured up. I never was good enough. Coming to Seacoast, there was a message about the ladder that many people feel that they have to climb to succeed to get God's acceptance and love. And I was on that ladder and never feeling good enough. When I heard the love Jesus has for me and I don't have to climb this ladder, this overwhelming amount of peace just rushed over my body and I just kind of felt okay and I just realized that everything's going to be okay and no matter what I'm going through, I'm not alone. Even though my life isn't perfect, I still deal with everyday things. I just know I have Jesus to turn to and it gives me peace. I feel this unconditional love and freedom now because of what Christ has done for me. And now I get to enjoy my life and know I'm on the journey is set for me. And it just gives me such comfort. After everything I've been through, I just feel like I finally have met the God I've always hoped for. I know I have Jesus by my side and someone to walk with me through it, which gives me hope for every day, knowing that I'll always be okay. Oh my gosh, I'm a poet. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that a great story there? I love the line that, that she shared, which was, I came to believe in the God that I always hoped for. The God that I was hoped was true, that I was hoped was real. Our challenge and hope for you this morning is that you can meet that God who is everything you ever hoped for. The God that will change, secure your future in eternity, but also change your life today. And we know it's, it's a journey. It'll take time. I, I look at my life and I think, I feel so much more fulfillment and freedom in my life now in Christ and the way I respond to things is so different than it used to be. But I'm still in progress. I still have my days. 
play basketball with, with me, coach with me. You'll see. I still have my days. I still want to give Jesus some things to work out in my life. <laughs> but what I have found was that the God, that our God, Jesus Christ, is everything I could hope for. Give me life today and forever. So let's pray as we close. God, we thank you so much for today, and I thank you that the resurrection in the story, when we try to make sense of it, it fits in your narrative of Scripture. It fits with who you are, and it fits with a God who is holy and just, but a God who is loving and forgiving and gracious and patient, and who wants that friendship restored with his creation. So we thank you for your death and resurrection. We thank you that you redeemed us and paid the price and you give us new life today and forever. So God, I pray that in this room now, if there's anyone who has never surrendered and just trusted your work on the cross for them, that today, Lord, you draw their heart to you. And if there's anyone in here who maybe at one point trusted but have wandered away, would you draw them back? And God, I, I pray that you would move in this place. And if that's you here this morning, if you feel like you're starting to get it a little bit and you want to take that step of just saying, Jesus, I trust that you are enough for me, would you pray this prayer with me in the quietness of your heart? Just pray, Jesus, would you forgive me for my sins? I thank you for what you have done on the cross. I thank you that you rose from the dead. And I still might have questions. I still have some doubts. I still have things that don't have answers, but I want to believe and I want to trust. So forgive me today and give me new life, Jesus. And if that's you this morning and you prayed that prayer, I just want you to know we've been praying for you and we will continue to pray for you. And in just a moment, I want to have everyone just keep their eyes closed and heads bowed. And if you prayed that prayer this morning, either to trust Jesus with your life or recommit and say, I just want to come back to you. Would you just look up at me so I can see you and pray for you specifically? Thank you. Thank you so much. I'd love to pray for you today. Thank you so much. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. God, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, pray for you. What else? Thank you so much. Awesome. God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you that according to Scripture that all of heaven rejoices over just one person who returns to you or one person who is saved. All of heaven rejoices, God. And this morning we've seen dozens of lives transformed because of you. And Lord, across our globe this morning and today, this week, there's millions and millions and hundreds of millions of people rejoicing and celebrating that you bring new life. And so, God, we join with them in celebrating today and thank you. I pray for anyone here who has committed their lives to you today or recommitted. God, would you walk with them in the journey from this day forward? We thank you in your name. Amen. Hey, we are going to end our time here, and I think it's appropriate that we celebrate. Anyone else?
We are, we are celebrating this morning because at Seacoast in every service that we had dozens of people who wanted to give their lives to Christ or rededicate, and that we will celebrate. And I trust that that's happening across our globe. And those who've already trusted Jesus, we are celebrating that we have life and we are no longer have to pay the price. He paid it. So we have freedom. So let's stand and let's, let's close our time here as we remember what Christ has done.